Well, good morning. And good morning to all those watching online and from Ording Valley, hey down there, and in traditions. Um, you know, I know Pastor Kenny is leading worship down at Ording Valley today. Pastor Zori's up here, so we're just trading worship leaders around. It's kind of a cool thing we get to do as a bigger family, but also cool to get to share the word together and to be on the same page on some of these complicated topics. You know, this morning as we talk about uh, in, our, in our relationship series, some topics, all relationship topics are complicated. If you really look at them, some are more complicated than others. And so today we're taking on one of the more complicated parts of relationship and community, and that is gender and sexuality. We're going to talk about gender and sexuality. And, you know, I feel particularly sensitive to this topic, not just because it's an issue of massive cultural debate, which it is, but also because I I believe that it's it's a massive area of spiritual warfare and has been throughout many cultures um, since God created gender and sex. And so I want to just ask you to bow your heads with me today and ask that God would speak to our hearts what he wants us to hear. Nothing more and nothing less. Father, we come to you today recognizing that we love relationships, we need relationships, and yet relationships are a complicated thing. And particularly in areas like this where we talk about aspects of who we are, aspects of our personality, our biology, and some of the most intimate parts of our relationships. Um, Lord, we need your help. We need your help to understand these things as you intended us to understand them. We need your help to live them out as you intended us to. We need your healing where we've been hurt or we feel damaged or ashamed or broken. We need all of those things from you. So Father, would you... Open our ears to hear your voice this morning. Would you open my mouth to speak on your behalf this morning? Would you allow your word to lead us and guide us towards truth and healing? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, something that is important for us to understand anytime we look at an aspect of of nature, uh, anytime we look at an aspect of creation, is to remember that everything that God created is meant to help us understand something about him. Everything. And that's why the Psalms say that the different parts of nature declare different elements of God's character, that they declare the glory of God. And that's also why in in Genesis 1 and 2, the first couple chapters of scripture, we see this frustratingly simple picture of how God made the universe. And it's frustratingly simple because God was not intending to write a a history book. He wasn't intending to write a scientific manual. I think there's some implications there. But the the point of Genesis 1 and 2 was to share a little bit of the story of why. Not so much the how or the when or some of those things, but the, the why did God create some of these aspects that we see in the world around us. And, and uh, you know, you'll remember probably the first couple verses of Genesis 1 tell us how God started with the world. That he came across the world and the world was, as, as the scriptures say, formless and void, shapeless and empty. And when you look at the Hebrew terms there, it really means unorganized and lifeless. That God came to something that was completely without structure, without organization, without order, and he came to something that was absent of life. And the rest of the creation account, the the organization of the days of the creation account, demonstrate how God brought both order and life 
to every aspect of creation, right? So he brings light in darkness, but he organizes light and darkness so that it functions well together. He brings, he separates sky and water, but then he, he, he puts animals into each of those places, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, right? He, he separates land and sea, and then he makes sure that each one of those has its own life to it. And then at the pinnacle of all that he creates is humanity, right? And, and what I want you to notice there is that in everything, God takes things that are chaotic and lifeless, and he gives them beauty and life. That's what God wants us to see in Genesis 1. He wants us to see what kind of God he is. Genesis 1 and 2 were written to compete with other documents in their day that that told the story of their own gods. And God says, I want you to know what kind of God I am. I am a God that takes the unorganized chaos of the world. And I am a God that takes the most lifeless situations in the universe. And I bring order. And the order I bring brings beauty and it brings life. That's who God is. His order always brings beauty and life. And interestingly, you know, not every detail of the human life is covered in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, very few of the details are, but some of the things that are covered are, are, are interesting. In fact, they're incredibly significant. And you'll see that God lays the foundations of human relationships in these first couple chapters because relationships are critically important to God. In fact, every part of the Bible is relational. It somehow impacts our relationship with him or our relationship with each other. And so he lays these foundations of human relationships first through gender. And literally the very pinnacle statement of the creation poem in Genesis 1 is God says, I want to create human beings that reflect me like a child reflects their parent. And so he says in 127, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so God says, I want something that looks kind of like me, that acts kind of like me, that carries on my legacy everywhere that they go in the world. God created children for himself. We are meant to be God's children that look kind of like him, act kind of like him, and carry on his legacy everywhere in the world. That's what he means when he says, I want something made in my own image. Now, interestingly, the only details he gives to those, the only distinction he gives is he says, to do that, they're going to have to be male and female. There's going to be a lot of details, a lot of variety, a lot of diversity, a lot of those things. But one thing that's really important is gender that some of them are going to be male and some of them are going to be female. Why? Because one gender by themselves cannot fully image God, cannot fully reflect God. There's something about the two genders distinct, but working together that reflects God. We'll talk more about that. The second part in Genesis chapter two, we get a little bit more of a close up on the creation of, of human beings, the creation of man and woman. And we see how God brings them together, how they come from one another and they come back together. And it kind of climaxes with this description of marriage and of sex in chapter two, verses 24 and 25. It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. 
And if you're wondering if creation was created different than how we experience things today, you need to look no further than that verse. Because shame comes pretty easily to us, doesn't it? In fact, we don't necessarily have to be naked to feel ashamed. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, why the world that God created is different than the world that we experience every day. That in Genesis 3, evil came into the world. And unfortunately, humanity embraced evil. And ever since then, the things that God gave order and beauty and life to have struggled with brokenness, chaos, and death as a result of evil. And there is this war between God continually bringing order and beauty and life and evil bringing brokenness, chaos, and death. And every part of creation is caught in it, including gender and sexuality. But what I want us to understand today is that God had purpose and he still has purpose for how we were created and how we relate. He has purpose for the gender that we are born with. He has purpose for the sexuality that we are capable of. He has purpose and those purposes get uh, get portrayed and expressed in different ways. And some of them fall within the order that God designed that brings beauty and life. And some of those expressions can fall outside of that. And they contribute to the chaos, to the pain, and even to death. And so I want to start with talking about gender. And when we talk about gender, we're talking about the biological sex of a human being and how that gender is expressed in the world around them. So we're talking about the physical body and the hormones within it that result in a gender expression to the community around us, right? And so male or female, or in our society, we, we have said that there are all sorts of other gender expressions and, and that, th- that you're capable of as well. But the Bible only gives us two And the vast majority of cultures throughout history and around the world on every continent, in fact, almost exclusively except our own culture in recent history, have always acknowledged only two genders, whether they believed the Bible or not. That they acknowledged the existence of male and female partially because they recognized these were the only two genders required for procreation required for the human race to continue. But more importantly to society and culture, every society, every culture has seen male and female as necessary together, but as distinct. That in every culture, masculinity brings certain things to families and society that that femininity doesn't. And and, uh, also femininity brings certain, certain things to family and society. The masculinity doesn't. And that is present throughout history and throughout anthropology that you see these two things almost exclusively. And these, this idea of gender roles has mostly been a good thing. But as we are well aware of, those gender roles can be taken to unhealthy extremes. When, when one gender seeks to dominate another gender, that is an unhealthy extreme, isn't it? Or when one gender seeks to be completely independent of the other gender, that is an unhealthy extreme. Those types of things are are not good, but the God-designed purpose behind gender is good, and more than it's, it's there to help us function as society, which it is. But more than that, it's to reflect parts of who God is in distinct ways. 
We're supposed to see in different gender, in the other gender, we are supposed to see parts of God that we can't see in ourselves. We are supposed to see in the expression of both masculinity and femininity elements of God's character, an incredible, complex, divine being that could not be summed up in one gender, much less in one person. And so though there is a a wide and overlapping spectrum of masculinity and femininity, it is all to represent God. Now, I want to talk about masculinity and femininity for a moment. If you look at some of the brain science behind masculinity and femininity, you will find that there are certain human traits that are common in every society around the world that lean towards masculinity. And there is this spectrum of masculinity which means that despite what they may tell you, there is no male in the world that possesses every masculine trait. We all have a mix of those masculine traits. And the same is true of femininity, that there is a spectrum of traits that lean towards the, the, the feminine gender, the female gender in every society around the world. And those traits, though no one woman possesses all of those traits of femininity, women possess a majority of those traits and a mix of those traits. Here's the really frustrating, confusing part. There's not like a solid line between them. The two spectrums of masculinity and femininity overlap with some traits that can be shared either way. And often different cultures push all of those traits into one gender or the other, but there is a brain overlap. There's distinction. Men definitely lean towards one direction and tend to portray certain traits, and women definitely lean towards one direction and tend to portray different traits, but there is also overlap. And everywhere on that spectrum, there are some men that will, will tend towards the extreme of masculinity as different from women as, the, as can possibly be. And there are some men that tend towards the middle of the spectrum where they won't necessarily look as the extreme version of masculinity, but they are purely masculine closer to the middle of the spectrum. And the same thing with women. So you see how if we have one distinct, this is exactly how men behave. We're going to mess up. And if we're like, this is exactly how women are, we're going to mess up. But if we just sit in the middle and we say, all men and women are exactly the same, we're going to mess up. There's a lot of opportunities to mess up, right? Which is why I think sometimes people are like, well, let's look outside this whole spectrum altogether and figure out different mixes and combinations of these things because it can be a little confusing. But what I want you to see in that spectrum idea is that there is, though it's a little messy in the middle, there is distinction between male and female. There is clearly a brain type that leans toward one or the other, and yet there is clearly some unity there as well. There is distinction, but there's also overlap. And if we do believe that gender, as the Bible tells us, is supposed to reveal something to us about God, then we have to believe that the differences between the two genders show us something about God and the overlap between the two genders also shows us something about God. I believe it, I believe it does. And I think we more easily see that in the very specific picture we get of marriage in the Bible that, that I think illustrates what can be true on a broader level of society. 
So in marriage, I want to I want to sum up the 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 Ephesians five passage that is a wonderful picture. If you want to read the whole passage of how God intends us not just to relate to each other, we often reduce it into like women should act like this and men should act like this, which is partially true. But it's meant to show us how we, by acting within certain gender roles, actually show the world how good God is. And so I want to sum up a little bit of the differences at the beginning of the passage and then at the end of the passage show how the overlap, the unity actually brings those two differences together in something that reveals God to us. So Ephesians 5 verses 24 and 25 sum up the marriage gender roles this way. It says, as the church submits to Christ, revealing something about God, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now notice it has nothing to do with the competency of the wife or the husband, everything to do with what it shows about God. Similarly, verse 25, for husbands, this means love your wives, no matter whether she deserves it, no matter whether you feel like it, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church, you're revealing something about God. He gave up his life for her. You see mutual sacrifice there from different angles. Why? Verse 31 and 32 tell us, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. The marriage scripture from Genesis 1, 2, excuse me. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Did you catch that word illustration? It is is an illustration. It's a picture. Two distinct people, different not only in their personalities, but even to their very biology, even to the way their brains work as a man and as a woman. They are as distinct as distinct could be. And yet their coming together in marriage is not meant to just make them happy, though it can. It's not meant to just look sweet, though it can. It is meant to illustrate to us something miraculous And that is that God, who is distinctly different than us, he works distinctly different than us. He thinks distinctly different than us. He wants to be unified with us in a way that is miraculous. And so the marriage picture which I believe is a more acute version of what gender in society can show us. The marriage picture in marriage, the male-female relationship is meant to illustrate God's intention for the God-human relationship. And that intention is this, distinctly unique persons in miraculously intimate unity. You might be like, wow, Caleb, that's kind of a wordy phrase. But can you sum up the relationship between God and humanity better? I don't think so. Because that's the way that the marriage relationship illustrates that these very distinct and unique people, God values masculinity. He values femininity. He values every individual. He values that we each have our own dignity. And yet he has found miraculous ways to join that that diversity into unity. Miraculous and intimate ways. And marriage is our clearest picture of that relationship. 
Now, I do want to say before we get too dogmatic about, about male and female roles in society, because marriage, we get a pretty clear picture in scripture. Some of the, the beyond that, some of the gender roles, there, there seems to be more, more options there within biblical, uh, biblical realms. But I, I want to say before we get too dogmatic about gender roles, I want you to think about the complexity of who God is. <clears throat> think about how complex God is. And how many diverse personalities and expressions it requires for God to be reflected in humanity. I mean, all men are not the same. All women are not the same. All human beings are not the same. Why? Because God is so exponentially beyond one person reflecting him that he created an incredibly diverse humanity. Now, he gave that diverse humanity very clear design and purpose and boundaries to stay within. But the Bible seems to indicate that within the overall structure of creation, there is quite a bit of freedom for expression. Why do I say that? Because I don't think that there is one way a marriage has to work for it to be a good reflection of God. I don't think that's true. I think there's different kinds of healthy marriages because it reflects how God can have intimate unity with different kinds of people. I don't think that there is one version of masculinity or one version of femininity that all men and women have to live up to that version of it. I think there are boundaries to stay within but I think there's a lot of freedom of expression within those boundaries. And so, you know, you may lean towards more of a complementarian type of relationship and that's totally fine. You may lean towards more of an egalitarian relationship and that's totally fine. There is, there is freedom within scripture and within the boundaries that we have been given for different types of relationships. Similarly, you may, you may lean towards what, what our culture would consider the most feminine of femininity and that's totally fine. You may, on the other hand, lean towards more of that, that middle area in the spectrum where you like things that guys like, and that's okay. That doesn't make you less of a woman. Same thing with men. You can, you can move towards either end of that, that, that space where masculinity resides. And I want us to understand that there is structure, but there's diversity and freedom within the structure. Because otherwise, we can make another error, which is to get really rigid and say, unless it looks exactly this way, you are wrong, you're in sin, you're displeasing God, all that kind of thing. So there's freedom there, but there is structure as well. And the point is this, that gender roles are given to us and the, the structures, the boundaries are given to us and the freedom is given to us. Both parts of that are given to us to display something about God that he desires distinctly unique persons to live in miraculous, intimate unity. He desires that in our communities. He desires that in our marriages. He desires that to be demonstrated in our workplaces where masculinity is celebrated, not swept under the rug, where femininity is elevated, not expected to change and mold to look like something else, that we would, we would see those things beautifully working together. And as we're reminded by Genesis 2, without that working together, either gender is incomplete. 
which means workplaces would be incomplete. Families would be incomplete. Societies would be incomplete unless the best of masculinity and the best of femininity is celebrated as two distinctly unique personalities that are brought into a miraculous intimate unity. Do you know the only other place in scripture that that type of relationship is described? Is the Trinity, which if you're not familiar with that term, that is how God can exist as both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons that are constantly in unity together. It's something that for for thousands of years, the smartest Christians ever, it's been a mind-blowing thing, difficult to explain, difficult to understand. And God says, you're not really gonna understand it, but the closest thing that you can understand is when a marriage couple comes together, that there is this unity that goes beyond what you can see. There's a oneness that goes beyond what you can understand. And here's the crazy thing about it. Marriage depicts that humanity is invited into that level of relationship with God. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united together for eternity have said, hey, we want our kids to be a part of that unity we want you to, re- to remain distinctly unique as the children we created you to be. And yet we want you for eternity to live in beautiful, intimate unity with your creator. That is crazy. If you know yourself well at all, or if you know God at all, you know that that would take a miracle, which is what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's what he proved for us at the resurrection. It's what awaits us in eternity. Not just doing whatever we want, but doing it with God forever. Now, all of this talk about gender and unity brings us to the primary form and the most intimate form of gender expression, and that is sexuality. And sexuality refers to how we express and relate to each other based on our biological sex, based on our gender expressions. And sex, simply put, is the physical expression of two distinctly unique persons in beautiful, intimate unity. The physical act of sex acts out that beautiful spiritual desire of God's that there would be this incredible unity there. But what, I, what we often fail to understand is that sex is so much more than physical. It's so much more than physical. Jesus explained the significance of it in Matthew 19 in this conversation with the Pharisees where we see some of the worst of gender expression and Jesus points us to the best. Watch this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? You see there some gender dominance being... being uh, used there. And Jesus says, haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, Genesis one, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh, Genesis two. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So what we see here, and there's a lot that we see here that I'm not going to be able to explain further fully, but what we see here is that Jesus is acknowledging a couple of things. One, he's acknowledging that God gave a sexual ethic that we live in a broken state of. He said it was not always this way. In the beginning, before your hearts were hardened, he did not intend for divorce to ever enter the picture. That came as a result of human hardness of heart. And what he says there is he says that sex joins a couple into one person. But it's not just the two human beings engaging in the sexual act that joins them into one. It's not purely a physical unity. He says what God has joined together, which means that when we engage in the physical act, God does something spiritual in that moment. God does something spiritual in our souls. That What happens through sex happens both spiritually and physically. Why? Because sex is a physical act with soul-deep spiritual implications. Put another way that might sound familiar to you, sex is a symbol of a powerful spiritual reality. Where else do we say that? That something is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard us talk about things like communion and baptism that way. Communion and baptism that were commanded by Jesus. They are the ordinances of the church. What for? Our primary forms of worship. That we would recognize what God has done in the spiritual by practicing little traditions in the physical. And do you know that sex is the same way? That it is meant to be glorifying to God in the right context. That it is meant to be worship to God in the right context. That sex is meant to be something physically that demonstrates something spiritually. And that coming together physically actually demonstrates the joining of two souls into one spirit. Which means that, what does that mean? How are our souls and spirits affected by our own choices? Our souls are affected. When we choose good things, our souls are benefited and experience beauty in life. And when we choose evil things, our souls are damaged and experience pain and brokenness. When you are married to someone, you are joined at the soul and spirit level. And so what you engage in affects the other person, not just externally, but internally. And anyone who's been married knows what I'm talking about all too personally, that we are influenced by each other. That sex becomes this thing that affects us at the deepest part of, of ourselves, which is why the Bible gives such strong such strong boundaries to where it's supposed to happen. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 is trying to make this point to the Corinthians who were a sexually rampant society. They, they encouraged it all the time, everywhere with anything or anyone. And he's saying, stop doing that. He's saying, sex actually is an access point to your soul. He says that when you sin in any other way, you sin on the outside. It affects you physically. It affects the circumstances of your life. But when you sin sexually, it affects you in your spirit. It affects you on the inside. And he's talking about the fact that we as human beings are temples. We are temples that are made to hold spirit. 
And we are capable of holding evil spirits or we are capable of fulfilling our purpose to have unity with God's spirit inside of us. And when we engage in sexual immorality, we invite something damaging and dark into a place that was meant for us and God to be intimate. And that is why sexual immorality is so damaging which is also why, why, why God gave such, such good boundaries to it because sex is powerful. It's not trivial. It's not small. It's not something that you can do or not do. And it really doesn't matter beyond the thoughts in your head and the experience of your body. It affects our souls. Our society does not want to believe that, but I can tell you that anyone who has counseled someone through sexual brokenness knows that it is true. And so the Bible gives us boundaries and it says that a biblical marriage, a biblical marriage, a marriage between two opposite gender people. Why is he so insistent on that? Because it's all about two different, distinct, unique from their biology to their personality, different people coming together and demonstrating a miraculous, intimate unity. It's the only safe place for sex. A biblical marriage is the only safe space for the powerful spiritual experience that occurs through sex. It's the only safe place. And do you remember that from the beginning, God gives us order and purpose to bring beauty and life. And when sex is experienced in that way, it brings beauty and it brings life. But you'll also remember that when we take it outside of those boundaries, the same thing that was meant to bring beauty and life, it can bring pain and brokenness and death. Maybe first in our souls before we ever see it in our bodies. Sex outside of the marriage sexuality expressed outside of the marriage. And I think we need to say in this day day and age that sexual engagement, even if it's not with another person with pornography and some of the different ways that our society shoves sexuality in our faces, all of that stuff damages the soul. We need to look at it like we would look at a disease. We need to respond to sexual immorality in ourselves, the way we have responded to COVID in the last year, that we would do anything and everything we can to separate ourselves from it because it's a disease to our souls. It's an addictive disease. It's one that many struggle with, that I have struggled with, that humanity has struggled with throughout history. And I want you to understand it's not something to be trifled with, no matter what our society says. And I believe that if you look deeply inside of yourself, you know that it is true because it's built into the image of God inside of you to understand sexuality at that level. Now, I hate the fact that I'm trying to cover gender and sexuality in one message. There's no way to touch on everything the Bible says or that we need to talk about in one message. But what I do want you to understand this morning is that when expressed as God intended, gender and sexuality are not only critical building blocks of society, which they are, but 
they are beautiful and life-giving reflections of God to us. It's worship when we do them right. It's revelation to the world around us when we do them right. When we do these things right, when we express gender correctly and sexuality correctly, there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's only something to be celebrated. And that is why there are some really intense, in fact, some of the harshest, harshest statements in scripture are, are to prevent us from going outside of these boundaries. But unfortunately, our society has done the opposite and has made this whole idea really confusing, more complicated than it already was. I think a lot of it comes down to this. Our society really believes that life is better without boundaries. That life is better without rules without restrictions that whatever you feel do it whatever you want you should have it and if there's anything that this broken world has shown us is that human beings don't do really well with that responsibility and where does it go would the exercise of human will to do whatever we want whenever we want has it led us towards beauty and life or has it led us not just in a moment, but over the long term, has it led us towards chaos and death? I think if we're honest, it's not hard to see which. Everything from creation shows us which way that that will go. Every society that has existed on earth shows us which way that goes. And our own, is tr- that is true as well. But also unfortunate, the Christian church has not always handled this well either. Now, there's something to be said for the churches that have held to a biblical sexual ethic and a biblical understanding of gender. That is one part of solving the problem. That is one aspect of doing things right. And my hope this morning is to present to you that biblical ethic so that you can understand where we are at in that as a society and as people. But the fact is that the church has not always handled what happened in Genesis 3 well. We know what Genesis 1 and 2 say, and we will celebrate that, and we will honor that, and we will proclaim that as we should. But we also need to remember that in Genesis 3, it all got broken. And that from the moment that Genesis 3 happened, gender and sexuality has been affected in humanity. And I would be so bold to say that it has been affected in all of us. Which is why every list of of sins and every list of the product of the sinful nature on our souls lists things like lust and sexual immorality because we struggle with our gender and our sexuality. In a myriad of different ways, we struggle, but we are not immune to it. We're not above it. And maybe if you somehow miraculously are, the people around you are not. Someone that you love is not. And and at times we have not handled that brokenness with the level of compassion and the level of wisdom and the level of understanding that Jesus did. Recognizing that yes, there is a biblical ideal, but what did Jesus come to do? He came to restore us to that because he knew we were far from it. Not just in the area of sexuality, but in every area of our life. Jesus came to restore wholeness where we are broken. And so I don't know where your brokenness comes from. I don't know if it's because you were abused or misused. I don't know if it's because of choices you made that you're looking back at later and saying, man, I really wish I hadn't done that. 
And it may be that you have been born in a certain way that makes you feel like an outsider looking in on a biblical gender and sexuality ethic. I don't know what the feelings are inside of you or the experiences of your past are. All that I know is that Jesus came to restore us. And I know what he came to restore us to. And I want you to know, I don't say this standing up here as a theologian, just kind of pushing up my glasses and saying, deal with the truth. I say it as someone who, as a young person, was abused in this area of my life. That as a child, a teenager, and a young adult, I struggled with issues of gender identity and sexuality. I struggled with all of those things until until I met Jesus. And when I met Jesus, these things that were tearing me apart inside, I put them in his hands and I saw him show me the way back to healing and restoration. And I want to tell you, unfortunately, it's not always a snap your fingers reality, is it? Because sometimes the healing, the depths of our soul takes time. And it was through, through periods of Christian counseling and praying with friends and, and being real with, with my small group and some of the other elements that you hear us talk about as a church that you're like, why do I have to do that? I'm too busy. You are too broken not to be busy with the things of God. And the sooner that we understand that, the sooner we are made whole and we experience the beauty and the life God intended. And so I want to say to you this morning that we have to be honest about these things with ourselves and with God. And that God does have for you healing and wholeness and relief from your pain. He promised and he proved through the cross and the resurrection that he was willing to die for you to be healed and he has the power to heal you. And so to those in in, in the room that maybe are not struggling with this, I want to challenge you that maybe you have been healed and you don't understand why other people haven't been, or maybe this hasn't been an issue. You were raised in a healthy family and you didn't experience any of the the evils of this world in this area and and you don't quite understand it. Can I just just challenge you to have compassion, Christ-like compassion on those that are struggling? Because it's complicated. There's not an easy answer. There's not a quick, easy fix. It is complicated and we need to have compassion. But conversely, to those of you that this morning, this has been a really hard message for you to listen to, a really hard one for you to hear. And the temptation is for you to walk away feeling even more on the outside than before. Can I challenge you to not run from Christian community but to lean into it, don't run from it. Don't run from Christian community because Christian community is where the the complex dynamic of healing can take place. You need to lean into it. And I will tell you, I remember at points in my own healing process, there were were moments where I was tempted to run, where I felt like I was going to be rejected, where I didn't think it was a safe place and the Holy Spirit led me to press in anyways. And do you know what? It was the best place. It was a healing place. And I cannot, you know, I can't guarantee you that Sound Life Church will always be perfect at all of this because we're not perfect either. We're a bunch of broken people trying to do things right. But what I can tell you is this is a safe place to heal. It's a safe place to be not okay all the time. 
It's a safe place to pursue Jesus even when you feel like you're a long ways from what he had in mind for you. And that's a good thing. The reality is, is that whether you're struggling with this or not, you have to lean in to God's paradigm to experience his miraculous grace. You have to lean into it. You have to lean into his compassion. You have to lean into his truth. You have to lean in to what Jesus offers us. And can I remind you of how he offers it to us? We talked about communion earlier, and we're not going to receive communion today, but I want you to remind remind you of the constant reality that those symbols remind us of. Jesus, on the night before he was going to be killed, was with his closest friends. Its own version of a miraculous, intimate unity when you look at the diverse personalities around that table. But Jesus came before them with bread that they thought nothing of because it looked like all of the other bread they'd ever seen in the world. And he said, this bread's different. This bread represents my body. And Jesus came and lived a body that looked just like all the other bodies in the world. Jesus came and wrestled with the temptations and the struggles and the insecurities and the fears and the brokenness and the abuses that all of us wrestle with. The Bible tells us that. But Different than us, Jesus did not respond to brokenness with brokenness. Jesus responded to brokenness with wholeness and health. And when Jesus said, this is my body, he was the only one that could say, this is my body and mean that it was whole, that it was complete, that it was healthy, that he had lived his whole life the way it was intended to be lived, that his life only brought beauty and life into the world, never brought brokenness and death. And he said, my body is broken for you. Why? Because everything Jesus came to do was to exchange his wholeness for our brokenness. And where your body feels broken, where your body feels damaged, where your soul feels infiltrated, where you feel like nothing can make you whole again. Jesus says, my whole body was broken for your broken body to be made whole. That's what we celebrate when we come before the cross is that there is nothing broken in us that cannot be made whole. And whether Jesus does it in the moment we accept it, which sometimes he does, or he does it in a series of processes, which often he does, or he does it the first day we wake up in eternity and we feel better than we've ever felt before, which he will. He has proven through the resurrection that he has the power to do it and he fully intends to bring wholeness to your life if you'll accept it. But that wasn't the only part, was it? Because some of our brokenness we weren't born with or it wasn't inflicted upon us. It's not just an issue of brokenness that needs to be healed. It's an issue of guilt that needs to be cleansed. And so Jesus took a cup a cup of wine like they had drank drank a million times before. And he said, this cup is different because this cup represents my blood. And Jesus had blood running through his veins like every other human being ever has. But the difference was that blood that represents our life, represents our soul, represents our spirit in biblical terms. That blood had never been affected by a choice that Jesus should feel guilty for. Jesus never sinned. He never followed temptation. He never gave in to pride. He never gave in to selfishness. So his blood, his soul, his spirit was actually pure. And he said, this, my blood is the blood of a new relationship. 
It's the blood of a new covenant, a new lifelong agreement that will join you together and never be abandoned. It's the blood of a new relationship. And that relationship is based on my blood being poured out for yours, that my purity will be given so that your impurity can be lifted, that my my innocence will be given so that your guilt can be lifted. And Jesus gave his blood so that every choice you've ever made, you do not have to feel guilty. You do not have to feel ashamed about what you've done or what's been done to you. You can be set free and made whole. And that, that is the message of Jesus. That's what the whole message of the Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is waiting to tell us is that everything God started in Genesis 1 and 2 will be made whole again. And Jesus died to make it happen. And he rose from the dead to say, stop me now, devil. And he cannot be stopped. And so my question for you this morning is, where does your brokenness lie? It is, is it in a hard heart that can't have compassion? Is it in a wound that you've buried for years? Is it in a condition of your body or mind that you just can't seem to explain away? Is it a way that you don't fit normal gender norms or understandings of sexual attraction. What what is it that you need to surrender to Jesus this morning? All I can do is give you what I believe is absolutely true. And what I believe the spirit inside of you is saying yes to. But Jesus is saying, will you eat the bread? Will you drink the cup? Will you receive what I've offered to you? And the choice is ours. I ask you to bow your heads with me this morning.